Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is John Hughes, part-time lecturer and tutor at the University of Oxford, also a freelance writer and presenter. Many, many, many more things. Just Google John Hughes ELT, or you'll find John Hughes, the director. Thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Hi there, Jonathan. Nice to be here. The book that we're going to be discussing today is Critical Thinking in ELT, A Working Model for the Classroom, which is a wonderful book, and I'm excited to talk about it. But before we get into the book, I'd like to hand over the floor to you, and I'd like to know about your story as far back as you'd like to go, and uh, bring us up to the time that you wrote the book. Uh, Well... Uh, we've just started the year 2022, so that means I've been involved in English language teaching for exactly 30 years this year, because I started in 1992. Mm. Um, my first job, well, it wasn't, it was volunteer work, because I finished a teaching qualification in London, and then I wanted to get experience, and at that time, there was the Bosnian conflict going on, so uh, refugees and so on were coming to London, they needed volunteer English teachers, so that was where I started uh, getting experience as a teacher, and I think it's probably where I learned very quickly to adjust materials and, and also write my own materials for the needs of the students. I mean, for those students in particular, there wasn't a course book, for example, that fulfilled their needs. They needed English to survive in London. Mm. Um, so very quickly, I started working with authentic materials and I discovered I really liked writing my own materials. Um Then I, through various circumstances at that time, the Berlin Wall had come down in 89. So for for, for teachers from the UK, moving moving to places like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, as it was called then, um, that was a sort of a big, exciting adventure because it was a really emerging world for us. So uh, I ended up in Poland working at an American university uh, in the south of Poland. And uh, it was a wonderful time because I was discovering so much as a teacher, um, but also just having this huge adventure. And Poland was a really quickly developing kind of country at that time. Um, so that was a great period of my life. It also gave me lots of opportunities. I got, I, I arrived at this American university where the students were doing uh, business degrees, um, and um, I ended up having the opportunities to teach business English, uh, to teach presentation skills, communication skills. Um, so it was a, it was a real it was a really le- sort of a learning period. I mean, the first two years of any teacher's career is, is you know, you, you develop, have to, you have to develop quickly to survive. Mm. Um, but I also just had loads of opportunities. Um, and I worked a lot. I started to work, do a lot of business English training and communication skills training with companies. And I benefited from working with really experienced business people that I learned so much about the world of business. I mean, I'd come from an arts background, uh, and so I had that slightly sort of cynical view of the world of business and capitalism at that (laughs) age. 
Um, and, and I started to meet amazing business people and entrepreneurs. And I just uh, developed a real fascination with with management and how business worked. And I learned so much about them. I mean, years later, now I'm, you know, I'm, I run my own company and, and, and a lot of that sort of business knowledge actually comes from all of those years doing one-to-one classes with managing directors and learning about the world of business, you know? Um, so it was, a, it was incredible, a period of great growth. Um, then I left, uh, I went to Italy for, uh, for, for a couple of years, and I ran um, a, a corporate training department. In fact, for six months, I basically I, I left language school and I went and worked in a factory uh, that produced car parts um, that had been bought by a UK company, and everybody had to suddenly learn English. So I was kind oh. of embedded in the company. And that was fascinating. Uh, I can tell you all about phosphating parts of cars. I mean, you know, my, my, my weird technical knowledge of car parts is, is amazing for somebody who's not really remotely interested in cars. Um, so that, that was fun. And obviously living in Italy was, was great for lots of reasons that people will know about if they've ever been to Italy. Um, eventually, I came back to the UK and I ran a teacher training department um, which was sort of the next step for me because I'd, I'd been teaching, what, sort of 10 years and I'd formulated my ideas on teaching and how teachers learn how to teach. So running a teacher training department was a, an interesting time and, and, and also learning how to develop teachers into teacher trainers. I spent a lot of time mentoring and working with teachers who wanted to become trainers and that's 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 sort of another period of my my own development that I really that I really draw on now because I think materials writing in particular really benefits from having trained teachers but in particular having observed teachers teach classes can because I jump in? Can I jump in real quick? Go ahead. Yeah. So the the biggest conflict that I've ever witnessed in a in a language classroom was when I was taking my CELTA, and it was between the the person that wanted to be a teacher trainer and the teacher training teacher, um, and it was a big blow up, and I was I was kind of shocked because you know, and, I, and I'm looking back now, I could kind of see that because this person, you know, they had experience and they were a teacher. Uh, you know, a bit of an ego in play. And I just remember that kind of dynamic. I was, I, I was younger at the time. Um, but I'm sure that must have been interesting when you're teaching teachers to be teacher trainers. Did, did you ever have to sort of deal with some outwardly ego things going on? Um, I, 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 I don't remember Particular issues, I suppose, particularly when I was working with experienced trainers. Obviously, if you come in as a manager, um, you're kind of working amongst equals. But again, this goes back to having worked with business people and observing managers mm. and learning how managers manage people who may have the same or more experience than they do of actual teaching and the subject matter, but management isn't necessarily about having more experience than the other person. It's a, it's a question of it's all sorts of other issues connected with it. So I, I suppose there was, there's a little bit of that. 
There's also, it's a bit like when you first learn to be a teacher. I mean, you're out of your comfort zone. You're kind of on display. It's quite a stressful context. And that that continues over into becoming a teacher trainer Mm. where, you know, people often feel they themselves are... They know best. They know best, but also they're on display and they're getting feedback. And, mm. you know, as much as we like, in, especially in English language teaching, we talk to like about po- with feedback, you need to be positive and then talk about the things to work on. But, but giving feedback is, is challenging, not just as the person giving the feedback, but the person taking it and recognizing that it's not about you, the person, in terms of, you know, a feedback on your you as a person, but it's feedback on on the work you do and inevitably conflict can arise out of those situations and it needs both sides to 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 approach feedback in a certain way so i can see why the conflict may arise you mentioned you had a liberal arts background myself i you know i studied music so by the time i got into teaching i was definitely able to take feedback my ego was at an all-time low as far as uh uh, music. What What about you? Before you entered your career, what what led you down this path? What did you study in your undergraduate? Oh, I, no, I came from a sort of theater drama background, although actually I'd gone to university to become a religious studies teacher. Really? Um, so I, I had a little bit of teaching experience and uh, I was interested in theology and religion and I had to do a secondary subject. So I chose theater which people always thought was strange, but actually there's a lot of connections between theatre and religion. Um, so I saw a natural <laughs> connection, and, and I discovered that actually theatre students had much more fun at university. Um, and so I kind of, uh, my, my degree, my focus of my degree shifted, and I never actually became a religious studies teacher. I... I had a period of time where I worked in the West End of London backstage. I stage managed some fringe shows. I did lighting. I did some acting, little bits of directing. So that, um, I mean, I think you find a lot of teachers with some sort of Mm. performer background. I think there's a natural sort of connection. Actually, um, just to add the story of how I ended up in Poland, I actually had an MA in theatre and as a result of that that was why I got the job at the university not because I was qualified as an English language teacher they wanted somebody to teach these business students the liberal arts program they had to do so they thought for well-rounded business people they should also study a little bit of drama a bit of creative writing develop their presentation skills they needed somebody with an MA background to teach those courses in order to get the validation from the US. And I just happened to have the MA. So that was actually why I was recruited, although it was a very small part of what I did. And very quickly, I got really involved in the English program, and particularly the communication skills training and the business English. I discovered I loved it because business English in particular and communication skills training there's a lot of theatre attached to that, and there's a lot of kind of scripting. I mean, if you look at mm. people's presentations, there's a lot of kind of performing techniques that you can apply to presentation skills. And I kind of got all of that. I understood it and really liked it, and I loved working with individual students to develop their presentations. 
Um, you know, and it was something I did for a long time. Um, so that's, you know, that's just how life takes you. I think we all have to live and work such a long time. I think it's healthy that people, you know, do different things and move into different areas and sometimes opportunities come up and there's a bit of, you know, chance happens kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting what you mentioned about dealing with, you know, people in the business world, you know, uh, during my teaching career, I ended up, you know, teaching some people that were really high up in some very powerful companies in Japan. Yeah, and I, I sometimes I thought I learned more from them than they learned from me. Um, some Absolutely. of these incredibly I'm, impressive yeah. people. Yeah, and also what used to blow my mind was you'd be teaching somebody very high up in the company and you'd be talking about the technical processes they dealt with or some aspect of business they dealt with. And then you get onto some other subject, which ended up being the real passion in their life. So I had a, I remember I taught the head of engineering at this factory, but in his free time, his love was of history and architecture. And of course we were living in I was living in Tuscany and uh, and suddenly he was teaching me all about the history of Tuscany in Italy. It was like having my own private, mm. you know, little sort of history class going on. <laughs> and I mean, he would love to be diverted into his real passion, which was, you know, the history of Italy. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you meet these people who are just sort of fascinating. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, that sort of, we had in the pre-show meeting, we, you mentioned that around 2010, you started thinking about writing a book on critical thinking in ELT. So can you walk us through your, your mindset around that time? What, what were you thinking yeah, about? Yeah, well, it's, as, as a teacher who, you know, started in 1992, suddenly we got to 2010 and people were starting to talk about something called 21st century skills and, um, as an inquisitive teacher, I thought, well, what is this and how is this relevant to me? And people were talking about the four C's, so uh, collaboration, communication, creativity, and critical thinking. And critical thinking became uh, sort of front and center within things that I were reading. People were talking about it a lot. Um, and I started reading around. I'd started reading things like Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire, the Brazilian educator. He talks about critical thinking. Bell Hooks, uh, the American academic, she talks about critical thinking. And it's like, well, what is this critical thinking and how does it, how does it relate to us as language teachers? Um, there seemed to be an assumption that it was a good thing um, and that we should be doing it. Um, and... And, and I think it's, I suppose I was sort of, if you like, I was thinking critically about critical thinking and it's right <laughs> that people go on questioning it. I mean, it is about asking questions and instead of just passively accepting that it's a good thing, asking, well, why is it a good thing exactly? So I, I was I was running this through my head a lot and then I was working on course materials and um uh, and people were sort of starting to say, well, where's the critical thinking in the book? And I'm thinking, well, am I sure what that is and how does it impact on my teaching? So mm. I started reading around a lot on the subject. And English language teaching was embracing it as a concept, but nobody had really written what it was or defined it in relationship to the language classroom. There were lots of different strands and lots of different definitions. Um 
I've run workshops on it. And if I start my workshop and say to everybody in the room, can you write me a one sentence definition of what critical thinking is? You know, I'll get as many definitions as there are people in the class. Mm. Um, so it's it was a kind of it was a tricky concept that I wanted to sort of and I wanted to explore it. So the, I started thinking about about it in 2010 and it started influencing my materials writing sort of over the last 10 years and so along so I started writing articles about it and doing workshops on it um and I suppose the idea for an actual book on the topic emerged around 2017 based on reading and articles that I'd written um and I'd also worked a long time with a co-author called Paul Dummett. Um, we'd written course books together. We knew each other professionally. And it was an area he was interested in. So I said, well, look, let, let's write it together because it was it's the sort of topic where you really do need to talk to people. You know, um, dialogue is important, uh, particularly in the topic area of critical thinking. So it makes sense to kind of co-rate co-write that kind of book and although it's a fairly relatively short book in a sense we wanted to make it manageable for most busy teachers to have time to read you know it's there's a lot of sort of iceberg to it there were just hours and hours of conversation and rewrites and arguments about concepts that went on in trying to create it um, so it was a it was a real slow burner because I mean I'm used to writing course books which you know, the bulk of my job happens over a two-year period on a course book. Well, f for a methodology book or a more more academic style of book, um, you know, there's a lot more, you've got to spend a lot more time thinking and reading around to some extent. So you got serious about writing it in 2017. Um, when did you, when did yeah, you finish uh, it? Well, it was, it came out 2019. So I guess we were writing sort of for about... We were writing solid for a year, but we sent it out to a lot of different people to read. We ran a survey for it among teachers. Um, you know, um, it had a lot of readers on it, a lot of people who gave feedback, you know, a mixture of people disagreeing with what we were saying, really kind of giving us a hard time. But that's what we wanted um, because it forced us to go back, rethink, reread, rewrite. So it was a it was a long process. Yeah, it felt like it felt it felt like hard work. I have to say some of the time. How did you settle on a publisher? Uh, well, both me and Paul had a very close relationship with National Geographic Learning and we'd written course books for them. Um, you know, you're, you're publishing books and you're saying that these books include critical thinking well we would just like to write a methodology book that defines it so that when people pick up a course book on critical thinking they can also you know take a look at the methodology book to just show the rationale behind it um, it goes back to what i was saying you know everybody was saying critical thinking is a good thing but nobody was quite saying why um and so we just wanted to support that. And we felt that National Geographic Learning was a natural fit for that. And they were very receptive to it. Uh, and by then, you know, we knew editors and so on and, and people we wanted to work with. So it wasn't um, it, it, it was a fairly logical step. Yeah. 
Great. Okay. Um, all right. So again, the book is Critical Thinking in ELT, a working model for the classroom. Now, when you and when Paul were, were putting this all together, how did you go about structuring the book? Uh, it went through various changes, um, but essentially we wanted the introductory chapter to just cover, sort of survey the history of the term. It was like, you know, where does the word critical thinking come from? Where does it first appear? And you start seeing it in kind of academic texts in the early part of the 20th century. But clearly history demonstrates there's all sorts of, you know, famous historical critical thinkers long before the 20th century. So it's a, but we wanted to look at where the term sort of first came from and also explore the fact that we use the term critical thinking in different ways, in different contexts. I mean, within the academic world, university world, I think it's often used slightly differently to the way we might use it in the English language classroom. And there's different perspectives on it. So we wanted to explore the sort of the history and the, the theory behind it, different perspectives in the first introductory chapter and then it was then it was sort of chapter two was like well but so what's this all got to do with us as English language teachings Mm. and we looked at the relationship and we wanted to come out with a sort of a workable way of for language teachers of thinking to themselves well what exactly is critical thinking and where does it fit into the lesson and then we always want to, although the book naturally, it's a sort of an academic topic, but it was important for us that the book would be practical, that an English language teacher wouldn't just feel that they were reading this sort of dense academic book, but that they were reading a book that actually gave them ideas. So one of the features of the book is that in the chapters, I think, two to six, where we're talking about speaking, writing, grammar, vocabulary, and the relationship to critical thinking, we have little grey pop-out boxes with practical ideas that you could use in the classroom. So it's like you read a little bit and then you say, well, here's an activity to demonstrate it. Why not go try it with your students? So there was this just this sense of we're giving you, you know, there's a practical reason for reading this book as well. Right. Okay. So uh, I want to jump into some topics in the book And let's start with the introduction. And again, like you said, I think this does tailor to lots of different people. Um, There's some academic reading in this, but it doesn't get too deep. And there's lots of practical resources. So I I would recommend um, anyone go out and read this book. And I think there is for there's something for everyone. If you're if you're looking for the nuts and bolts sections, again, chapters three, four and five, you can really dig in. And like you said, you give some tangible lesson plans, which is great. But let's let's start with the introduction. You're really hitting on some deep issues here. Um, almost some of the some of the topics that come up in the introduction could be an entire podcast. Again, you you talked about this Brazilian educator. Um, how do you pronounce his name? Paulo. Paulo Freire. Which Brazilians, Brazilians might correct my pronunciation, but yeah, that's my understanding. And that really struck me as someone living in Japan because one of the and I was talking about this with somebody today that. That's the one thing that I really find lacking in my students in Japan um, is that they just don't have the same critical thinking set that that I felt that I had growing up. And and what you talk about in the introduction is there's a sort of shift in, in the mid uh, 20th century where you know we're sort of shifting. We want learners to be more autonomous. And then you mentioned this idea of naive thinking. 
Um, in, in the, in the book you write, uh, critical thinking is real social change. The latter is necessary for maintaining the status quo. So you're getting deep right off the bat, which, which I like. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because yeah. you suddenly started, I mean, Freire was, is quite a divisive character and he was political and he was critical of education as just this sort of the teacher spouted information. The students received it, accepted it. And and that was it. And they didn't go further. And he was, you know, in, in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, if anybody wants to read it, great book. Um, he, you know, he's talking about education that needs to go beyond that. Uh, it's, you know, it's connected with social change. Uh, the, the idea of dialogue, the moment when instead of the teacher just handing over knowledge and the students receiving, there actually has to be discussion and we need students to question and, and be involved in, in the discussion. So with things which, you know, to some extent, many of us probably possibly take for granted now, um, say at university level where you may, you know, you, you want your students to discuss things and talk about it and so on. So there's, there was that kind of shift, and he talks about critical thinking in that way, um, which is a slightly different view from when we get into sort of uh, critical thinking these days is often referred to in connection with uh, students' acceptance of what they might find on the internet as being true when it's fake and in terms of digital literacy and information literacy, critical thinking is coming up a lot at the moment, and it, it partly explains what its re reemergence as an important topic. Because yeah, can of I the actually read a, a section from the book that I really liked a lot? You said, um, sure. you or you and Paul said, more than ever, people need to be equipped to distinguish between information that is accurate and information that is ill-founded or poorly researched at best and fabricated or misleading at worst. So you're making the point, yes, critical thinking is important for a lot of reasons, but especially in this, you know, the digital age, you know, sifting through a large amount of information, categorizing the information, fact checking the information, you know, prioritizing the information. I really liked how you made that point. Um, that's, you know, I, I, that really struck me. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're accounting for what we're probably uh, in that we, yeah, we're giving the reason for why it's, it's emerged as a, as a key, key issue in education at the moment in particular. Right. Um, All right. And then in chapter one, this working model. Now you, you go over uh, Bloom's taxonomy that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, now the, the other model you talked about is Crothwall and Anderson, which I'm not as familiar with. And then I guess well, the I next mean, one is... It's, 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 sorry. I mean, this is just a revision of Bloom's taxonomy. So what many people call Bloom's taxonomy is actually based on a revision from 2001 by uh, Crothwall and Anderson, who were involved in the original group creation of the taxonomy many years later. So, oh, it, so it's... I think you mentioned in the book, was it Crothwall was Bloom's PhD student? Uh, yeah, he like was that. part of a team on this. So, I mean, interestingly, Bloom often used to say, I'm probably one of the most well-known names in education, but one of the least read. And if you go back to the original document um, many years before that what we're actually quoting nowadays with the taxonomy is the revision that was done in 2001, um, which was led by Crathol and Anderson. So it's a, Got it. it's a, it's a minor point really, but yeah. And then, so this is your model, is that correct? Where you have the basic comprehension, 
creative thinking and then critical thinking is is sort of yeah um, i mean all we did really was the, the 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 representation of bloom's taxonomy is often as a sort of pyramid i mean if you google bloom's taxonomy you'll see lots of early images of colored pyramids and i don't know the history of where that kind of emerged from because it's it's not in the books but it but also you'll see bloom's taxonomy represented sometimes as a as a sort of a circle with segments, and there's different ways of representing it. Um, and also a, what it's led to is this misleading idea, misinterpretation that lower order thinking is somehow therefore lesser thinking than higher order thinking, and that we should all aspire to higher order thinking. We were trying, we, um, if anybody looks at the book, they'll see that we present it as a flat structure, more like a, a kind of a cline. And at one end, you've got lower order thinking with remembering, understanding, applying what we're calling a sort of basic comprehension. And in the English language classroom, it's the sort of present practice stage of your lesson. You present new language, students practice it. It's a sort of, you know, receive and do kind of approach. What we then say is with higher order thinking, with analysis and evaluation, you're getting into critical thinking. And then at the top, you've obviously got create, which is creative thinking. And that it's not a sort of a series of six separate steps. It's a kind of a climb and throughout any lesson, you're moving up and down and moving around that, that structure. So, I mean, you're positing that, you know, critical thinking is the bridge towards higher, the upper level, higher level thinking, creative thinking? Uh, I wouldn't so much say it's a bridge because critical thinking is still part of comprehension. But I would say, I mean, typically, if I observe teachers, typically I will see lots of, and if I analyze the lesson in terms of, say, Bloom's taxonomy, I would see a lot of time being spent on helping students to understand and apply language they've learned. Mm. And then I often see teachers doing quite creative activities. So suddenly we're jumping to the top, if you like, of the higher order thinking of Bloom. But I might see teachers spending less time on encouraging students to analyze and evaluate, which is that sort of uh, that sort of fifth, fourth and fifth part of Bloom's taxonomy, which I would describe as where the critical thinking is happening um, so when you're when you're doing teacher training, is that something that you notice? Teachers oh, spend yeah, less time it, on the analyze and evaluation. Yes, and it's not always surprising. I mean, if you've got a teacher teaching beginner elementary levels, um, you know, students just need to be learning vocabulary and then just trying to use it. The point at which you start to get them to start to analyze and evaluate, it, it may come up in different ways. Um, for example, I might include a text with, with university students who are perhaps learning English so they can study in the UK. We might look at a text on ways of identifying fake news or, or bad sources for references and that because so the academic skills but on a general English course book, for example, it would be more about perhaps choosing a topic which demands some sort of response, mm. you know, on a subject that students kind of want to talk about. So you're not just um, you're not just choosing a, 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 an inauthentic text to introduce a language point, 
which is often what you see in some course books, certainly it's what you saw in course books 20 years ago. The writer just created a text on any subject really as a vehicle to present you vocabulary or grammar or whatever. What you're saying is actually let's choose an authentic topic and if you went away and Google that topic, you would find out more about it. It's on a subject that may engage you at an intellectual level and encourage you to ask questions and think, well, is that really true? But at the same time, you're learning English. And that, you would argue, would increase the motivation and how memorable the language learning was. Um, and that's how I would see critical thinking influencing the English language classroom. And that's sometimes harder to integrate. It often happens more with higher level learners because they have more language to use. But not only. I mean, I think the danger is that we often treat students with a lower level of English as somehow, therefore, they can't cope with uh, more complex texts that that aren't about language, they're just about the topic. I mean, I think the danger is when you're writing low-level material uh, with, sort of with low-level English that you actually make the materials less interesting than the materials in the higher-level books, which shouldn't be the case because just because somebody has a lower level of English doesn't mean they have a lower level uh, of intelligence, if you like, or interest in the world. They still want authentic topics and so on. And that's a challenge for the materials writer because it's harder to bring authenticity at lower levels. But if you bring in authenticity, quite often it makes it easier to include topics that will get students starting to start thinking critically about the world and question things. Right. All right. In chapter two, reasons for promoting critical thinking to language learners. And I guess this is going to feed back into that discussion about teaching lower level learners. Uh, we might come back to that. Uh, learner yeah. autonomy. Uh, increases engagement and motivation, and the balance of thinking skills. In the summary section of the chapter, uh, you write, critical thinking activities prompt learners to ask questions about the language and, you know, and then become more autonomous. So I guess that's, I just wanted to give a quick anecdote from, from my perspective. I was talking to someone about this the other day, and the thing that I just, I don't get from my students here in Japan is, you know, Why? Um, and again, it might be sort of a respect thing or it might be a critical thinking thing. That's, that's another issue. But, and then, uh, the person I was talking to who I respect was saying, you know, well, you know, why do we really need to teach them critical thinking? You know, it's not really important. We need to teach them basic English skills. And I said, well, for example, when I was learning basic Japanese and my teacher was asking me to write all these sentences in my notebook and I was doing that, but at a certain point I said, can I, can I write these in my computer? I need to learn how to write Japanese on my computer. And she said, yeah, no problem. So not one time has a student asked me, why do I have to write these down? Like no one has asked me, can I write this in my computer? Um, maybe sometimes a, a student will ask me, oh, can I take the test on this? Or can I take the test on that? But I, I guess maybe that's sort of a different conversation. But the thing that I was drawn to the book was that, yes, if we can somehow incorporate critical thinking in our lessons, we can help learners be more autonomous and increase the engagement and get them to be better English speakers. I guess uh, I don't want to get too far into the debate just now that we're in chapter two, but it did, it did kind of strike me that I'd like to sort of influence learners to get more into their own learning, but also we have to teach these basic skills, right? So I guess that's what we were trying to accomplish in chapter two. Yeah, I think we would just argue that um, if students are developing 
that ability to naturally analyze, question or evaluate something on their own, it, it will encourage them to go off in search of things on their own and to become more autonomous. I mean, ironically, the aim of any teacher with a student should be to m make themselves redundant eventually. What right. you're trying to do is teach and then giving the students the skills to then eventually leave your class and go off but continue to learn on their own. I mean, that should be, I think, the aim of most teachers, really. That's what good teaching is. But um, by developing those critical thinking skills and giving them those skills, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're saying to students, if they come across a piece of language uh, while they're, I don't know, watching the news from another country or something, they've got the ability, there's the the skills to to deal with that, and to, or or if they read something interesting in class, that it encourages them to go off and do more reading around the subject, and possibly that's you're watching a video or something, and it's going to be. Um, in English. So if I play part of a TED Talk video, I might not show the whole thing, but I might encourage the students just on their own afterwards to go and watch the whole video, for example. It's that kind of questioning. So when people say, yeah, they've got enough to do, um, we don't need to be teaching them critical thinking as well. I'm not teaching them critical thinking. I'm teaching them sort of learning skills and an attitude and mindset, if you like, and giving them certain ways of, through my teaching, encouraging them to, to think critically. I'm not saying today I'm going to teach you critical thinking. Um, I, I'm just in, trying to integrate certain activity types into a lesson that will develop those skills. And that's the so problem I have. I, I conflate those two things sometimes. Because I sometimes think, how can you learn anything if you don't know how to think? Um, and that, that could be wrong. I'm not saying that's that's the right thing to think. Um, and then also the same thing that you're saying is, well, we need to embed critical thinking skills to scaffold some of these topics we want them to learn or some of these skills we want them to learn. Um, yeah, so and it's I like a cultural thing as well, right? Yeah, but I mean, we already, you know, we're not necessarily, I mean, a lot of what happens in good teaching naturally it includes uh, critical thinking. I'm not suggesting it's something that people don't do or it's something new. Um, I mean, if you look at the deductive inductive approach to teaching grammar, you could argue that there's the approach with a grammar point where you tell the students the rule. And then there's the approach where students have to try to work out the rule which I would say requires some analytical evaluative skills, some critical thinking, and that clearly is fostering more critical thinking. It's much harder to do. Right. Uh, it's, it, you know, we've all had that experience of the classroom when you're introducing a new grammar point and you're making that decision. Do I tell students the rule, which may not exactly be right because often there's exceptions to the rule, so it's not really a rule, but right. I'm going to give them guidelines because of the level they are or am I going to show them some sentences from a text and say analyze or compare those two sentences what's the difference what does that tell us about the difference say between the past simple and present perfect or something like that now my students my my own students 
if they've had a long week and I'm presenting a grammar point that I'm asking them questions to try to lead them to a conclusion about the grammar, they will often, they know, if they know me well, they'll say, sorry, John, just tell us the rule today, okay? It's so much easier. We just, just give us a rule and then we can, and then we can fill in the gaps in the course book. That's how we're feeling this afternoon. And I accept that, you know? Yeah, I like that. You know, I've studied languages and there are days when I just want to be told the rule and get on with it and fill some gaps because it's satisfying to do. But I know from my long-term learning, actually, that if the teacher's encouraging me to discover the rule and discover things about language myself, probably in terms of my long-term learning memorization and so on i suspect that's probably going to be more effective i but mean at least reality, your student your, at least your student acknowledges that step is 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 most of the time beneficial or at least some of the time when when their when their brains are up for it which is which yeah, is great and, to acknowledge and, and, that and i mean some, sometimes you tell your students look this is sorry guys this is good for you, you, know, you <laughs> do it. it's a bit like eat your vegetables working out is it yeah uh, there's a little bit of that. And we, uh, you know, as, as teachers, we find different ways to some students need to have explained why they're doing it. Some students go along with it. Some students naturally they're already doing these things in their language learning and they they have they naturally have an aptitude for it. Um, I mean, I would argue that in any good lesson, you're doing a little bit of both. You're telling and you're guiding students Mm. to discover things. I mean, both things. And if you're teaching, I don't know, if you're teaching a grammar point or a set of vocabulary, you're going to use both approaches, really, aren't you? Uh, Because you've got more than one different student probably in your class, but also we all have different things work in different ways. So in terms of memory or learning or acquiring some new area of language, a little bit of both is important, which is comes back to why the combination of lower and higher order thinking in the classroom in any lesson is so important. And there should be elements of both throughout any lesson, really. Absolutely. Um, all right. So chapters three, four and five, I'm not going to spend too much time on because I want to keep this conversation under an hour. Uh, But I would recommend people to really dig into those chapters. Um, As we said before, there are tangible lesson plans, skills for grammar, vocabulary, pronunciation, reading, listening, writing, and speaking. Um, So, uh, but I'd like, again, I think I would recommend people to buy the book and to read those chapters on their own. Um, Chapter six, you talk about uh, 21st century skills and literacies. Again, sort of the impetus for how this all kind of came about. The thing that struck me is you, you highlighted to the readers you said, you know, look, we need to be critic. We need to critically think about how we view images. Um, I know you mentioned text and video, video and multimedia stuff as well, but the image thing really struck me, and I thought that's a great way that you can reach out to a low-level learner. I- images is I don't know if that's what that's where you're going with this, um, but images can be misconstrued. Um, even if we're talking about basic vocabulary, that was one way that I sort of thought, okay, if I'm teaching a low-level student, I could use more images um, or if they have a base of vocabulary knowledge to sort of elicit some vocabulary response. Um, what, what's your thought on um, critically thinking about images and and why do you think I was struck by that point in the book? Um, well, there's been a one along with 21st century skills has been a big shift into the sort of the areas of visual literacy and the importance of, of the way we read an image. 
So it, it's kind of timely. And then it's it, the obvious example with critical thinking is that images that have been photoshopped and the ability to recognize that or interpret an image or, I mean, if you think about iconography now, um, I was What's in that? Egypt. I, well, I was in e I was in Egypt really recently, and I was struck by I was looking at hieroglyphics from three thousand five hundred years ago, and thought it's funny we talk about visual literacy now. The Egyptians were already on the case, mm. you know, their use of iconography of of, of images, symbols. Uh, to tell a story, they were already doing it a long time ago. And in a sense, we're so when we talk about visual literacy in this century, we're not doing something necessarily new, but we are dealing with new types of images and our ability to change an image and for an image to trigger a response is is quite amazing. But but in terms of the language classroom and going back to your point about lower level learners, I mean this is a good example of where critical thinking can influence. The, the lesson for lower level learners. If you had start a lesson with a strong image, I mean, most lots of teachers will be familiar with the idea of showing the students an image, starting the lesson. And typically, teachers will use an image to teach vocabulary. I mean, you might say, well, what can you see in the in the picture? Describe it. And it's very much a sort of a can you identify the object in the image? What are the words we need to talk about the image? And we spend time doing that. But with good photographs, there's also the opportunity to speculate about, so what do you think the person's thinking in the photograph? Or why did the photographer take that photograph? Or what do you think the title of this photograph might be? Um, what do you think might happen next? There's all those sort of inquiry type questions linked to it, which make a photo kind of more interesting. And, and our students, we're dealing with students who are endlessly looking at photographs on social media, they're also taking their own photographs. So once in the classroom you've had you've looked at images and talked about them, there's also the opportunity to say to students, well, for homework, why don't you take a photograph? So if you've done a unit in a course book, for example, called Water, there's one of my units in a book, it's all about the language connected with water. You could say to the students, for homework, take your own photograph called water, bring it back to the next lesson, and we'll do a quick, we'll start the class with a quick five-minute show and tell of everybody's photographs and why you took that image and what it's saying about water. So you've got this wonderful resource and opportunity to get students to think critically about an image they're looking at and then to also create their own images, which students these days are, you know, love doing i mean students love showing their photographs so that's the sort of that's the way you might integrate it even with a quite a low level class i mean it's not necessary for sort of higher levels in that case yeah i was just thinking now um on, on twitter th there's 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 been a uh, conflict with these two sporting figures i'm not, I'm not going to get into the details because there's no reason for it but the point is one of them is a younger gentleman around 24 an influencer for many years on YouTube. And another one's a CEO of a company who's also been kind of an influencer for, for many, many years. And they're having this sort of online debate where they're just recording messages into their phone and they're posting them on Twitter. But they're done very differently and with like subtle different things. And I even something like that, even if you pushed um, mute, you, there, there's so many things you could, you could evaluate from those two videos. Um, th there's lots of exciting things we can use in the classroom 
And uh, that was one thing I liked about chapter six. But let's uh, move on. Chapter seven. Um, I included an observation tool that I use with teachers where if you look at the book, there's like a graph and you've got lower, higher order thinking and then the length of the lesson. You can observe a lesson or you can study a lesson plan and you can look at the different stages in the plan and say, where in my lesson is the lower order thinking happening? Where's the critical thinking happening? Where's the creativity happening? And it's 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 quite a revealing kind of way of looking at the whole lesson globally and the stages. And, and, and it shows you that, you know, quite effective lessons are those where the teacher includes a real mixture of different levels of thinking. Um, and it puts critical thinking into context. It doesn't mm. say it's a separate thing that we need to address separately and it's something else we need to do in our teaching. It's just, it, all it does is demonstrate that it's an integral part of what we're doing. For many teachers, they'll look at it and think, oh, actually I do this already. That's quite reassuring, but it's just, it's, it's putting some emphasis on it and, and just highlighting it in people's minds. And I think as a, as a way of thinking about how you plan a lesson, uh, how you teach a lesson, it's quite a useful tool. So that's uh, and, and the response from people often is they read chapter seven. And you think, OK, that's where it really crystallizes what it is you're trying to do here. So that's probably my my favorite and chapter. I, yeah. I liked how you included the survey responses. That was really interesting. Um, again, we're, yeah, we're, I mean, yeah. I part want, of our research was yeah. to just, you know, do a survey of teachers and and find out how they define critical thinking and how they felt they integrated it. Um, we well, thank you for including that. You didn't have to do that. Um, I'm glad. I, I think some some people might have cut that out because it sounded like you were you did that during the course of writing the book, where you were getting ideas from people. Um, oh, we did it right from the outset. That's fact. awesome. Um, okay, so again, the book is Critical Thinking in ELT, a Working Model for the Classroom. Um, that, that's the heart of the interview. But I, before we uh, wrap it up, I did, I did want to ask your recommendations. If teachers are looking for textbooks to use that use critical thinking skills or something that you could recommend, are there any books that you could recommend to people? I mean, a couple of titles that I've worked on recently, um, books called World Link and World English by National Geographic Learning. Um, I mean, for example, in, in World English, we include some TED Talk videos. And if anybody's used World English, it includes some quite some some lower level books for sort of beginner elementary students. You might be thinking, well, how does the critical thinking fit in? But I think this goes back to my point about authenticity. We've chosen topics that are real, um, you know, images that are authentic. So you bring in that authenticity that demand a, a sort of a, a much more sort of authentic response. And we've included TED Talks. Now, TED Talks are notoriously high level. One of the things we did actually was approach some TED Talk speakers, and we got them to re-record their TED Talks. Really? But I took their TED Talks uh, that they'd done, and then I kind of re-scripted them at a level that I thought the students could cope with, and we went back to the speaker and said, can you redo it? 
roughly following this script and 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 they agreed so we have some interesting re-recorded ted talks for lower level students they're still talking about the same topics but they're presenting them with lower level language which was you know it was so much fun to do and work with really interesting people but it, but it's that kind of thing where we've tried to keep that that sort of you know if if you like um topics about interesting things that demand responses but at a level that the students can kind of cope with. Um, so that's where we've tried to kind of keep that idea of critical thinking within the materials. Um, and similarly with Worldlink, I mean, we're including reading topics about, you know, real things, things that students might be interested in, the kinds of topics. I mean, the best thing for me is when you've done a lesson with students, even lower level students, and they leave the classroom still talking about the topic you've done in class, or they want to go off and maybe they go off and read about it in their own language, but that's fine. That's all sort of building into the whole thing of that sort of that sense of becoming an autonomous learner. So those kinds of course books, World English, World Link, are, are attempting to, to, to do that. So yeah. from my perspective as a university teacher in Japan, um, in the curriculum, you know, we're, we're, we are, at least at my school, we have a listening and speaking textbook, um, and we have a reading and writing textbook, and there are also some extra classes that that students can take, elective classes. Where, yeah. where, where would these two books, World Link and World English, where would that fit in? Is that is that a book well, that well, you could well, use for a reading and writing or a listening and speaking, or is it more of an elective course? Uh, World English certainly deals with um, uh, all four skills. You know, you'll find uh, support on on writing. Oh, sorry. By the way, we also have a four skills class. Okay. Well, that would be that for World English, for example, because you've got sort of a writing section which which helps you develop certain kinds of text types that you'd expect to see at different levels. Um, there are reading texts, the speaking and listening skills. There's, I mean, also work on pronunciation in particular and grammar and vocabulary. Worldlink still has those things, but it's it's very much on communication and fluency. So for teachers who are really interested in developing students' fluency, um, Worldlink would be that sort of that sort of choice. Okay, so Worldlink World is- more for a communication, listening, and speaking class, and World English is more of a four skills class. Yeah, I mean, you find writing stuff in 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 Worldlink as well, but the focus is very much on on fluency building and communication skills. Yeah, maybe we can include some of those links in the show notes if people want to to check out. No, I mean, if anybody's interested, if you go to my site John Hughes ELT and click on the books section, you'll find the links to the National Geographic titles that I've mentioned. Uh, link to the critical thinking in ELT, but I mean, you know, like all these things, you can you can Google them and go straight to to the websites that way. All right. Well, again, the book that we discussed today is Critical Thinking in ELT: A Working Model for the Classroom. John Hughes, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. You're welcome. Thanks very much for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here, you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. 
probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.